Dr. Yonash's patient has been followed off-study without specific adjuvant intervention and is currently free of cancer recurrence. I next met with Dr. David Quinn, who reviewed with me several patients from his practice, beginning with a 77-year-old woman. So this is a lady who uh, has led a very full life. She's a classic septuagenarian in California, was still playing golf, and she developed a pain in her left side that interfered with her golf swing. And so they went to see about that, and initially nothing was found, but then subsequently she developed a lump. She got a scan and was found to have a left ninth rib mass and a renal mass of 8 centimetres. It was recommended that she have a minimum invasive nephrectomy, but she saw an oncologist who started her on sunitinib, and she got real sick. She got quite bad early diarrhoea, which is a little bit unusual, but then increasing fatigue, inability to get out of bed, and at that point she came to see me. In terms of her staging, did she have metastases in addition to just this one lesion in the rib? No, that was her solitary metastasis. And was that painful? Yes, That was the issue with a golf swing. And the primary lesion, was that causing symptoms? No, no symptoms at all. When we did a urinalysis on her, she did have a little bit of microscopic blood in the urine, but no hematuria, no nothing. And I mean, she really actually, you know, we've been serving oncologists now for the past year and investigators, and you might find this hard to believe, but this is the number one question that we're getting from oncologists. How do you manage the patient presenting with a primary metastatic disease? And I'm curious what your thoughts are looking back. It sounds like there's a little controversy about whether to take the primary out. How would you have thought through her management from the beginning before we get into what you did? So would I have taken the kidney out in this case because it was asymptomatic, because I was going to put her on a targeted agent? Not necessarily. I think it depends on how it all fits together. So if I have a patient that's got multiple metastases and has a large volume of cancer outside of that primary, I'm not inclined to take it out. And provided I have a tissue diagnosis, which I think is important, I will start patients on targeted drugs like sunetinib without removing the kidney. Now, in terms of, quote, minimally invasive surgery, let's say for her, was that going to be laparoscopic surgery? Yes, laparoscopic or robotic nephrectomy. You know, I know that there's a a lot of controversy, certainly if the primary is symptomatic, I don't think there's too much controversy, but when it's asymptomatic, I don't know, what fraction of time of people presenting with metastatic disease is the primary asymptomatic? Oh, I think in the overwhelming majority, it's probably 85, 90% are asymptomatic from their primary. And I take it the pain wasn't bad enough that you'd want to radiate the rib? Well, that was a question, so it became an issue. But looking back, did she require pain medications? Was oh, she... oh, yes. Yeah, she came in and she was actually, the first time I saw her, she was barely conscious from opioids. Wow. We had to wake her up. Huh. When we woke her up, she had severe pain in that left side. So, I mean, she could have gotten that radiated, but also gotten systemic therapy on top of that. That would have been one approach, and I think that's reasonable. And our bias would be to give us, if we were going to do that, to do systemic therapy and then give her some form of stereotactic radiosurgery to get the dose up because traditionally renal cell has been radiation-resistant. And we feel, and I think there's some evidence emerging, that patients do better with the higher doses of radiation we can now deliver with those techniques. If you look at all comers like that in this type of situation and a patient were to say to you or a consulting physician were to say, What's the likelihood that we're going to see pain relief from using, for example, sunitinib, you know, pretty quickly, let's say within a few weeks? What would you say? I think that you do certainly see pain relief in a majority of patients. I would say two-thirds. 
Now, the problem with this particular lady is that she wasn't tolerant of the medication, nor did she get pain relief. She got some, but when it came to a choice between taking the medication and that pain relief, she actually opted out. She decided not to take it in a very short time. And she was being treated by an oncologist who had limited experience with sunitinib. So how many cycles had she gotten when she got to you? She was eight weeks into treatment. She'd had an initial four weeks of treatment and two weeks off and then had gone back on to 37.5 at a lower dose for the second cycle. And what was the primary toxicity issue? Severe lethargy. She also had disproportionate diarrhea, which was somewhat unusual. Had the symptoms gone away by the time she started her second cycle? She had made a significant recovery, but the moderate pain relief that she'd had in the break had really gone away. So she was back on heavy doses of opioid medication. The reduction in dose, I mean, it's something that happens commonly. If I've got to reduce to 37.5, I try and put people onto a continuous treatment, and that's not always necessarily tolerable. So I do 37.5 daily each and every day. So is there anything differently you might have done in her case that the oncologist in practice didn't do in this case? Well, what I did with this case was I looked at her and I took it to a, an ad hoc multidisciplinary tumor board, which we run, and we, we have the benefit of multidisciplinary practice, which is not always the case in community settings. In fact, that can be difficult in getting the appointment set up. So we took the case into a tumor board within an hour of her arriving, where we had uh, a minimally invasive surgeon, a surgeon that specializes in, quotes, big oncological surgeries and urology, radiation oncologist, radiologist, and pathologist, and put it all together. And our conclusion was that we were going to work this lady up for admission to hospital and resection of the rib mass with a thoracic surgeon. The renal mass was on the same side, so we were going to do a nephrectomy on her at the same time. Hmm. Is that what happened? That's what happened. And how did she do? She did well. She was out of hospital in six days, and she did not require systemic therapy for 16 months. Wow. So she got a break, and she got back on the golf course. I got to tell you, when you said resect the rib and take out the kidney, I was thinking to myself, hmm, I don't know about that. 77 years old, but I guess uh, it proved to be a good move. She's fit and had no other major comorbidities. Now, you don't always get presented with that, but it's becoming an increasing challenge. We have in the United States, and this is an international phenomenon, we have older people who are stunningly fit where cancer is their only problem. Of course, there is a spectrum here. You've got the other issue where you've got someone who's got major comorbidities, is not very fit, and where cancer is just an additional problem. But this is the spectrum of geriatric oncology in 2010. Let's talk a little bit about the choice of initial systemic therapy in renal cell cancer, kind of using this sort of as an example, but understanding that there's differences. She went on what is, we know from our surveys, you know, clearly the most likely agent that would be utilized, sunitinib. Yes. What are your thoughts about bevacizumab interferon or pazopinib as first-line therapies, either in her or anybody? Right. I think each of them is an option with data that we have for patients that are not candidates for high-dose IL-2, which is a very small group. And so I think sunitinib, pazopinib, and a combination of bev and interferon are very suitable agents to give in the first line. We have limited comparative data, although the COMPART study comparing sunitinib and bazopinib is just closed to accrual, and that's going to give us first-line data comparing those two agents. I think the only data that we have to date comparing interferon-bev with sunitinib comes from a study that was 
recently presented at ASCA, which also had an arm in it of Bev and Temsorolimus from the French group presented by Bernard Escudier. And the suggestion there was that, at least in their hands, Bev interferon was superior for progression-free survival to either Sutent or the combination of Bev and Temsorolimus. So from that perspective... I think there's evidence that particularly good risk patients may do better with a cytokine and an immunotherapy in combination with the BEV, and so I wouldn't exclude it. Now, if you look at the usage figures in the United States, oncologists that treat renal cancer are not using that BEV interferon combination very often at all. Yep. Some of the data suggests it's less than 2%. And so from that perspective, that is rather surprising. But I think it has to do with what American oncologists feel about interferon and their usage. European and particularly Asian physicians are more inclined to use interferon. I think they use it better. And in many parts of Asia, interferon is still, as a single agent, the first-line therapy. So I think there's some variation here. Now, the question in my mind is, what do we lose by not giving a cytokine up front? Because if you look at the interleukin data, it's becoming clear that you need to give it first. If you go to a targeted agent and come back to high-dose interleukin-2, it seems to have additional toxicities, and the efficacy, we don't really know, but it doesn't seem like it has the same efficacy. So the risk-benefit ratio there is lost, and whether the same is true for interferon and you shouldn't use it later or not is also an interesting question that hasn't been tested. It's particularly salient for the use of BEV in this population because where do you use it? We only have upfront data with BEV. We have very limited second-line data. We'll get some second-line data from the BEST study, which is near the completion of accrual. Some of those patients will have had prior treatment, and three of the arms have significant contributions from BEV in them as a single agent in combination with serafinib and in combination with temsorolimus. So I think we'll get some more data. It's going to be interesting to see in that randomized phase two data from the BEST study whether that influences our practice and our comfort. I think it will give us reasonable toxicity data. But whether it gives us efficacy data that allows us to use BEV later with any confidence, and I mean, I think at the moment the data suggests that BEV alone or in some sort of combination is being used later in the course, but where it fits in on what is a merry-go-round of treatment choices with at least six horses at the moment that you can pick, just where it fits in is not clear. Getting back to this lady, what do we know about the response in primary lesions to systemic therapy, any of these first-line regimens? Well, cytokines do not really produce a response in the primary. We know that historically. The targeted agents do, but what's your definition of a response? What we often see is a shrinkage of 5 or 10% in the size of the mass. It's not very significant. We have a series of neoadjuvant studies done at MD Anderson and Cleveland Clinic that show us that there is a little bit of shrinkage that occurs in the primary. But I don't think we get the massive shrinkage we sometimes see in metastases. And that poses an interesting question. I mean, we have people with sizable pulmonary metastases who go on to sunitinib, pazopinib, or the combination of interferon and BEV, and sometimes their disease spectrum changes. So you start out and maybe 50% or two-thirds of the disease was in the lung, but after you've treated them for four or six months, they've done very well, and clearly at that time there's been a transition so that by far the majority of cancer that you can see at least is sitting in the kidney. Now, do you take the kidney out at that time? Do you just take it out because it's there? 
or do you leave it and follow? And the majority of patients are not going to have symptoms with that, although some people can, when they go on to these drugs, have an infarction of the mass in the kidney, uh, clearly as hyper-responders, and get colic and, in fact, acute abdomens at times. But that's actually pretty rare. So from that perspective, that leaves a question as well. Should you do a later nephrectomy? And then, of course, you've got an issue of them being on angiogenesis inhibitor drugs with the risk of surgery. And the data seem to indicate that them having been on BEV surgery is a bigger risk with dehiscence of the wound and other complications than if they've been on the VEGF TKI drugs and they need to have surgery in that particular setting. So let's dissect this patient one more point. Let's just kind of take a step back, think about this woman or, you know, a 77-year-old patient in general who's in good shape but still 77 who requires first-line therapy. Let's just pull out the whole issue of the primary and the painful met. Let's just assume that there's disseminated disease, but this kind of a patient who requires systemic therapy, situation A, they're pretty much asymptomatic. Situation B, they're having, let's say, multiple areas of pain. How would you think through a systemic therapy, first-line therapy in those two situations? Well, a patient who's asymptomatic, I think there is a role for talking to them about observing their disease. And we've just opened a study from Cleveland Clinic from Brian Rennie and colleagues there that looks at observing patients and uh, collects tissue and some other things, biological specimens, to look at what happens to patients that are observed with this disease. a very important question. And, you know, we do this in probably a third of patients, and they're not just elderly patients. So from that perspective, offering observation is important. Some patients can't cope with that. They want to go on treatment straight away. And if they're asymptomatic, I think I like to see their headspace in a place where they've earned their therapy. Okay, I'm going on sunitinib, pazopinib, or interferon and BEV, and they're prepared and educated about the side effects, and we get them to define what's a benefit for them, which is often disease control, another difficult concept. So what do you think most likely you'd be thinking in that situation, specifically, of the three? In an asymptomatic patient? Mm -hmm. Well, generally, my go-to drug is going to be sunitinib. I think we have the best first-line data. With a p-value of 0.051, I still think that there's a significant overall survival advantage from the drug in the first line. And I think that from that perspective, the others have to displace it. And we didn't see enough data from the studies with BEV and interferon from CALGB and Avorin to necessarily make that combination first line. So let's say you're dealing with a situation where you really want to avoid toxicity because of the patient's personality or frailty, whatever, but the tumor is not a crucial concern. The patient wants to be treated, but is concerned about toxicity. Still sunitinib? Well, I would go through the spectrum of different agents, and I think I'm still going to plonk for the VEGF pathway. The other two drugs that we have available are serafinib and pazopinib. And over a significant period of time, I think serafinib has been tolerable in the elderly and produces a response. The problem is that our first-line data with serafinib is not as good, but you're still following the patient for disease control. And so from that perspective, there may be better tolerability for serafinib in the elderly patient if you're concerned about that. And certainly the side effect spectrum is different. There's more hand-foot skin reaction with serafinib than sunitinib. Do you think in the long term, though, patients in general will do better on serafinib, particularly elderly patients, than sunitinib from the point of view of quality of life? 
I think that we don't know. We don't have direct comparative data to look at that yet. Now, if we look at the SWITCH study that's running in Europe where patients start off on one of them and are treated to progression or intolerance from toxicity and then switch over, I think that may start to answer that question. But that's a question that's not just been addressed in the elderly. And this issue of sequencing is a separate complex issue. How about pizopinib? I know we don't have comparative data yet, as you were talking about. I mean, what's your clinical experience? Do you think it causes as many problems or less than sunitinib? I think the problems are different, and my gestalt is that overall it may be tolerated a little better than sunitinib. The problem is that as you treat patients with VEGF receptor tyrosine kinases in sequence, some side effects get worse, such as diarrhea, and some side effects get better, such as hand-foot-skin reaction and general sort of tolerability. So the patients that I've been treating with pazopinib, I've been going back to it because they may have had two or three agents and done well previously on sunitinib or serafinib or a BEV-based combination, and I therefore want to hit the pathway again and try and get disease control with tolerability. And so from that perspective, I'm waiting for that head-to-head data that comes out of the COMPART study because I think that's going to inform us, and I think that's the power of doing a phase three study. There's a lot of criticism of that study. I mean, it's a non-inferiority study, but it's going to give us good data on toxicity comparatively, and I think that the disease control and overall survival things are going to be, in quotes, interesting. All right, well, let's see if we can bang through the other cases that you have today. Next is the 62-year-old man. Right, this is a Caucasian school teacher, lifelong problem with psoriasis, was on a therapy with Embril and EDTNF, tumor necrosis factor therapy, for two years. He then presented with a very aggressive renal cell cancer that when we staged him, he had brain, bone, lung, and liver metastases. His hemoglobin was 9, and his calcium was 13. So he had what amounts to a poor risk cancer, actually. And what symptoms, if any, did he have? Oh, he was majorly symptomatic. His ECOG status was a two when he arrived. A fit man for his age, fully active, still teaching at the time. And so from that perspective, the first thing we did was we stopped the embryo. What's the mechanism of that? And do you think it's related to what happened with the tumor? Well, I think that we don't know, but if you look at the data from these TNF-targeted therapies, and you recollect we've had a couple of phase 1-2 studies that have been undertaken with these sorts of drugs in renal cancer, and it looks like some people respond to it. So go figure on that. It's difficult. But from that perspective, the cancers you see on these treatments are more likely to be in the non-Hodgkin lymphoma group where the classic immunosuppression cancers, if you like. And there's a suggestion that some of the things that are instigated by HPV, such as cervical cancer, some head and neck cancers, may be set off by these immunosuppressive therapies as well. So in renal cancer, I don't think the relationship is clear, but some sort of immune factor in the genesis of renal cancer is suggested by a number of things. Immunosuppressed patients do tend to develop renal cell cancer at a higher rate, even though it's not the most common cancer, And of course, we have the tantalizing data recently linking hepatitis C with renal cancer and the suggestion that there's some sort of chronic immune mechanism there. So one is suspicious that there may be a relationship between TNF-targeted therapies and the development of a series of cancers. And renal cell, with the relative short use of these agents, renal cell is a potential one that may be induced or unmasked by this therapy. So I guess one of the things we think about when you're thinking about first-line therapy is whether they fit into the so-called adverse, you know, prognosis or risk factors in terms of metastatic disease, which 
I mean, to me, I think about biochemical issues and clinical issues, and this man seems like he has both. Yeah, he's got both. And so he had uh, Mozart Memorial Sign Kettering criteria five out of five. So he was clearly poor risk. Now, of course, our preference in the first line for treating patients with poor risk is to give them temsorolimus. Now, the issue here is temsorolimus is immunosuppressive. It's related to FK506 or sirolimus, which is an immunosuppressive drug, a rapalog. And therefore, we discussed this long and hard. We said, well, do we stick this guy on an mTOR inhibitor, which might further immunosuppress him? And after a lot of discussion with the patient, to some extent, he's a very intelligent man, and his family, he opted to go on a VEGF TKI. Coming off the cheminocrosis factor, he got concurrent stereotactic radiation to the brain. We gave him uh, bisphosphonate for his hypercalcemia and bone metastases, and he actually had a miraculous clinical response. He got sunitinib? In actual fact, he wanted to go on pazopinib. He wanted to get pazopinib as part of a trial. He didn't qualify and ended up going on serafinib, which would not have necessarily been my choice. But he looked at the literature in a great deal of detail and had, in quotes, a friend who'd gone on sunitinib for jest and not tolerated it very well. So he was kind of biased against it. And he went on to serafinib, even though it wouldn't have been my first choice in this patient because we have very limited data in poor risk patients. And now we have a situation where two and a half years later, he still has disease control. He progressed on serafinib and has now been on Everlimus for about nine and a half months. So he ended up on an mTOR inhibitor, which has controlled his disease. And he's clearly responsive in both his VEGF pathway and his mTOR pathway, even though he's not really had miraculous shrinkage. He's probably had 10% shrinkage on the serafinib, which is fairly sort of standard, and perhaps 5% shrinkage on the mTOR inhibitor Everlimus. So how did he do specifically in terms of side effects and toxicities with both therapies? He had some toxicity. His big issue with serafinib was diarrhea. He did not, interestingly, get too much hand-foot-skin reaction, which one would worry about in someone who's got psoriasis. And his main issue with Everolimus is alteration of taste and some lethargy and a sort of skin rash that comes and goes. So how long was he on the serafinib? He was on serafinib for probably 18, 19 months. So he was on serafinib for a long time. I was speaking with Marsha Bros yesterday about thyroid cancer. Right. And she was saying that they've seen, I guess their patients end up having longer responses to serafinib and that when she sees the longer-term therapy, she's been seeing like a weight loss and um, muscle asthenia. She sends them to the gym and stuff. And I was saying... Hmm, I'm not sure I've heard that in renal cell. I wonder if they see it or if it's somehow related to longer duration. You know, we may see that in some patients where they get a sort of wasting situation, but I don't think it's particularly common. Now, we treat a reasonable number of thyroid patients as well, and thyroid patients have a much longer, and we're not talking about the anaplastic ones, we're talking about the ones that have follicular or papillary differentiation. Right. Particularly the follicular ones go a long time. So these people are going to be on treatment for a long time. And remember, the follicular patients have a survival that is equivalent to the general population of their own age. So you're treating them for a long time. And I think the other issue with these drugs, and I don't think it matters whether it's serafinib, sinitinib, pazopinib, or whatever, is that the individual cancer alters the milieu of the patient. The patients are different, and I think the milieu, whether it's VEGF, is some sort of global milieu, and the patient's different. So they will get different side effects. And I have seen a couple of patients who've been on long-term serafinib, and they have got a sort of wasting thing that you would have thought looked a little like what we used to see with anti-HIV therapy, where the 
is a dystrophic loss of fat in the face and a redistribution of fat in the body. And I think that can be an issue. And we're still, you know, whilst we're coming up to the five-year anniversary of these drugs, it's still early days. And how did this man's psoriasis do during all this time? It hasn't really been a problem. He uses tar preps, which have been part of his sort of regimen for all of his life. The psoriasis is not flared on VEGF nor mTOR therapy. How about your 66-year-old woman, a teleconsult from China? That sounds interesting. Well, this is a 66-year-old lady from Beijing. They sent us a photograph. We thought it was wrong because she looked like she was about 35. And she has metastatic clear cell carcinoma to the lung and contralateral adrenal after nephrectomy four years earlier. And so the issue in Asia is that the patients are different. They respond to the drugs differently. What would I pick for this patient and recommend? Well, if this lady were in Los Angeles seeing me at USC, the first-line therapy would be sunitinib. And our experience with the VEGF TKIs in Asian patients in the early days was that they did get more side effects, but they also seemed to have disease control that went on for a lot longer than our wider Hispanic patients, which was kind of interesting. And the other issue here is that interferon has a long history in Korea, Japan, and China. And so that's the first line of therapy. So after the teleconference, I told them sunitinib. She ended up going on to interferon and did extremely well. She had some side effects from it, cutaneous reaction, lethargy, but she was on interferon for more than two years. So she's a responder, and she did not manifest a partial response. She had a reduction in disease volume of about 15%, and then she progressed. And so we had the second teleconference, uh, and the family weren't happy about that, so they flew to Los Angeles to see me. And they also saw some other people that do a lot of renal cancer in Los Angeles. And the recommendation was to go on a VEGF TKI. And there was a lot of concern about whether she'd tolerate sunitinib. Well, she ended up going on a half dose, 25, which was not what I suggested. But she went on a half dose, and she actually had a complete response to sunitinib. But within six months, she'd become profoundly hypothyroid. And so that was a challenge. And she did not have some of the standard lethargic reactions that we have apart from that, but she developed a complication from it. She's been thyroid replaced and is still doing well. They did try and escalate the dose of sunitinib, but they couldn't do it for her, and she's tolerated it quite well. So I think she's done well. And the spectrum of side effects in these patients on these drugs is different. We often see a very marked cutaneous reaction. These Chinese ladies with perfect sort of porcelain skin, 10 to 14 days into therapy, look like a beetroot. They go all red all over. We just stop their therapy and have to reintroduce it. And they also sometimes are troubled very much by hand-foot skin reaction. And the differentials and the different VEGF therapies in this population are going to be important. So do you approach the choice or dose of therapy different in Asian people? You know, sometimes what I'll do is I'll start Asian patients, particularly North Asian patients, on a lower dose and then try and work them up and see them a little more frequently because I do want to optimize the dose. Now, we have more experience with certain of these drugs in Asia than others. So there were specific studies done more with serafinib. There was a serafinib versus placebo on the second line, similar to the original target study that was done that produced a lot of data. And of course, serafinib is approved in hepatocellular carcinoma, which is common in the region. And so they have some experience with it. Sunitinib has been used less. And unfortunately, in the head-to-head trial between sunitinib and serafinib in hepatocellular carcinoma, uh, 
rollout was stopped early because the sunitinib was too toxic. So we have some data in the patients from Asia, and the patients on the west coast of the United States are from Asia do respond similar to their counterparts as to where they came from. You'll get a different reaction in each of them. The patients who are more in southern Asia, Malaysia, Thailand, the Philippines and India tend to have uh, different manifestations. They get quite severe hand, foot, skin reaction with hyperkeratosis, big sort of blistering welts where we need to really treat them very aggressively with topical lotions and keratolytics and things. How about your 49-year-old man? With lung mets, a good candidate for high-dose IL-2, he had a partial response and then progressed. And the issue is what therapy do you give him after progression on high-dose IL-2? And this is interesting because sunitinib is generally now our go-to drug for patients if we want to give them first-line therapy, certainly in America. So do we use sunitinib? Well, the way sunitinib was developed, led by memorosone Kettering, which does not do high-dose IL-2 therapy, the majority of patients that went on their original two phase two studies, which were post-cytokine and virtually all of them had had interferon, that led actually to the drug's approval before we had even the phase three data, suggested that there was a fairly consistent response. We have limited data with sunitinib after high-dose interleukin-2 until recently, and Chris Ryan from Oregon presented some data that we helped accrue to with the combination of sunitinib and allotinib, epidermal growth factor receptor inhibitor. Now, our conclusion, this was at ASCO this year, was a poster and poster discussion. Our conclusion from that is that adding allotinib to sunitinib is probably not worthwhile going forward. But interestingly, in that study, the 10 patients who'd had prior interleukin-2 therapy had an extremely long progression-free survival, extending, I think it was 19 or 20 months, and we're still looking at the data. So they did extremely well on the sunitinib-based PrEP. And there were 10 patients treated at a couple of centers that predominantly do high-dose IL-2 as first-line therapy for appropriate patients. And so it may be that patients that get IL-2 that then progress do well on, certainly on sunitinib. And we know from the targets data that cytokines first followed by serafinib produces an overall survival advantage. So we're getting evolving data on that. That's really fascinating. I mean, when I saw that combination of sunitinib and erlotinib, I was thinking, hmm, dermatologically that should be interesting. But I see here that only, I guess it was only 22% of these patients, of the 37 patients, or eight of them had grade three toxicity. What did you see with the rash? We did see some significant rashes in some of the patients, but it wasn't worse than what we see with allotinib alone in patients with lung cancer. So I think that if we had have seen a very marked response in the combination, better activity, we would have been looking to take that forward. Now, I think that the epidermal growth factor receptor pathway is important in some patients with renal cell cancer. And we've had previous data with lapatinib in a randomized study from Alain Raveau in France, where they did a big phase three that suggests that if you had epidermal growth factor receptor expression, you did better with lapatinib than placebo or the hormonal control they did. So I think there's something with this pathway and this disease, but it may only be a very select group of patients. And until we get a biomarker coupled with the agent and work out what the combinations are, it's probably not going to be relevant. I do think that epidermal growth factor receptor is likely to be more important in non-clear cell patients. In terms of that selection, we have a SWOG study with single agent. We're now moving into combination where that could potentially have a benefit. Any theories, if it really turns out that these patients who've had high-dose IL-2 do respond, do you think it would just be the nature of the patients that get selected or that something happens once they get IL-2 to make them sensitive to it? 
Well, I think it may just be patient selection. So we're taking the good apples that we use for interleukin-2 therapy, and we then say, okay, well, you had some response or no response or whatever, and you've broken through, and we're then treating them. So they may just be the definitive good-risk patients who are going to do well anyway. Or alternatively, there may be some biology to this, and I think there may well be a basis to this that we need to explore because... I think that patients that get cytokine therapy, you need to use it early, probably first. And then after that, do they lose anything by going on to the cytokine first and then delaying targeted therapy? Well, I think with our merry-go-round approach that they go on with the targeted drugs, the suggestion is that provided they have time to get exposure, they don't. And they may actually do better with getting a cytokine first or another immunotherapy. It doesn't need to necessarily be a cytokine. I think we've got a lot of new stuff coming. And I think there is space for trying to do trials in these patients. I think it's really important. But from that perspective, there's no indication they do worse. And there's some indication perhaps that they may do better. We need to design a study to test that if we think it's true rather than just run on what we think is premise and the basis of 10 patients that we treated on the West Coast on that study whom Chris Bryan was the lead author at ASCO 2010. I know there was some data presented at ASCO, I guess, looking at a modern series of patients who got IL-2. Can you comment on that? Yeah, the SELECT study. It was a series of more than 100 patients from the cytokine working group headed up by David McDermott from Beth Israel. And the overall partial response rate in the group appeared to be higher. The complete response rate seemed to be a little lower than we had historically. And so I guess in terms of overall activity, it was significant. The patients were selected out to have clear cell and were selected to have a series of biomarkers evaluated. And the biomarker that was principally being tested and the study was powered for was to look at the overexpression of a hypoxia marker called carbonic anhydrase 9 or CA9. Now, hypoxia in renal cell cancer correlates with a good prognosis, so the patients do better. In virtually every other cancer, if hypoxia is present, then the patients do worse. So renal cancer is unique, and that relates to most likely von Heppel-Lindau-Hif hypoxia-inducible factor regulation in that setting, the development of a cancer. Well, as it happens, the premise was that overexpression of carbonic anhydrase 9 would correlate with a better response, progression-free, and overall survival. In actual fact, the data that we have to date suggests that that's not the case. And this was originally data that came from UCLA, looking at a set of patients they'd retrospectively tested. We're also testing carbonic anhydrase and a number of other cohorts. I think they were looking at it in the first-line sinitinib interferon study to see whether it influenced outcome. So things are not always as they seem. I think we're going to develop better biomarkers, not just for IL-2 therapy, but for the other targeted treatments as well. We've been hearing about carbonic anhydrase for a long time. It's kind of interesting that it didn't pan out. I guess, I don't know, I've kind of heard this sort of overall global thing that IL-2, you tell patients there's maybe a 10% chance you're going to really have a significant response. As you mentioned, I think in this study, they saw like maybe almost a 30% response rate, but did it really play out that around 10% of the patients had prolonged responses or did it affect the way you counsel patients? Not yet. You know, I think this is the first blush 
And we're going to see a lot more data from this study. And at USC, we're now involved in the cytokine working group, but we got in too late to be involved in this study. And I think that the benefit is going to be following these patients for a bit longer and looking at the biomarkers and then being able to go back and say, well, you know, this is something that looks like it correlates and then not skewing too much on what that biomarker or that pathway analysis is until we've tested it in some more patients. And I think it's interesting, the cytokine working group were able to put together a fairly impressive group of selected patients for this. And, you know, that's the way high-dose IL-2 therapy is going. It's going to be given in selected centers. And I think that's the right way to do it. And I would like to see us put most patients on some sort of protocol, if we can, with this therapy, because we need to really capture the data to work out what we're doing. And we need to have very strict quality control. So you mentioned non-clear cell, and your last patient is a 60-year-old woman with metastatic papillary renal cell. Can you talk about her? Right. Well, this is interesting. This is a good performance patient who'd previously had a nephrectomy about two years before and then presented with a peritoneal recurrence and lung metastases and was initially consulted with us and made contact but had difficulty getting in because she was in a health maintenance organization that didn't include our network. And we had made some suggestions about therapy, none of which were acted on by her oncologist in that network. And she then came to us fairly sick. In fact, we saw her within five days of the consult being approved, but she arrived on a gurney and at that time had fairly gross societies and was not looking so good. Now, the selection of therapy is interesting in these patients. We know that mTOR, VEGF, TKIs have got activity, and in addition, epidermal growth factor receptor agents have activity. So we admitted to the hospital and sorted out a number of metabolic problems that she had and some renal impairment and tapped her ascites, and she improved. And in this case, this was several years ago, she was good enough to go on the swog study of allotinib, and she improved her ECOG status of zero fairly rapidly, but never manifested response in terms of rhesus criteria. And she had a response for about 10 months and then progressed. She then went on to an mTOR study and did not respond to that drug in this particular case and then was placed onto a VEGF receptor tyrosine kinase. I think it was sunitinib in her HMO and had stable disease for about six months before she died. So from that perspective, the selection for these patients is still not clear. Each of those agents may have potential, and this is an area where we've got to do some more studies. And there are several studies coming, some company studies. Novartis will be evaluating at Verlimus. There's studies looking potentially at CMET inhibition and also some studies of combination of mTORs and epidermal growth factor receptor that's important. I think the message for the community oncologist is you can throw these patients onto anything. Uh, and you may get a response, but it provided the patient suitable, really nice to try and enroll to some of these studies that are coming up and to look out for them. So even though, quote, you can throw them on anything, is there sort of an algorithm you have in terms of first and second and third line therapy with, say, specifically papillary cancer? I think that, you know, I had been inclined to use an mTOR inhibitor first based on the data that came from the global study headed by Gary Hudders that looked at temsorolimus versus interferon and the combination of the two. And data in a sub-analysis done by Janice Dutcher that showed that patients that got temsorolimus in that study who were not clear cell by whatever definition did better. 
my clinical gut feeling is that some patients do very well with mTOR inhibition, but a lot of them don't. And I sort of come to the conclusion, and also doing a drill down of that study of the patients who are not in clear cell were not really reviewed until very recently, it's clear that there's a whole hodgepodge of different patients in that 90 or so patient group that Janice evaluated. And because of the transition and some of the companies from Wyatt to Pfizer, it was sort of slowed down in terms of looking at the data. I've come to the conclusion in the last six months that in terms of treating papillary cancer, we don't know what we're doing. And I would like to get a better handle on that. I see a disproportionate number of papillary patients because the oncologists in the community would be quite happy to start a clear cell patient on one of the standard combinations or agents. But with papillary, they say, oh, Okay, this is coming to USC because we want it to go to a multidisciplinary review board. They may have a study. I'm not confident of how to treat this particular sort of patient. So, you know, I'm listening to this and I'm thinking to myself, this lady came in in a stretcher and then totally normalizes her performance status. Did she have any tumor shrinkage? Very minimal. Her ascites improved, but of course we tapped it. Now, it didn't come back until she progressed. So it kind of sounds like she benefited, and I'm not sure how far out the word is about, you know, EGFR TKIs or, or lotnib in this disease. Honestly, I haven't heard about it. Well, there's our SWOG publication was published in early 2010. It's a phase two study. Now, it did not reach the criteria. And I think it's SWOG 317 if you're looking for it. It did not reach criteria that were required for it to be promising in terms of partial response because when we wrote the study, it was before we really understood what targeted therapies did in renal cancer. And so disease control is important. And clearly a proportion of patients with this disease, maybe a significant proportion, can benefit from targeting that pathway. Is it enough on its own? What are the sequences? And so I'd say, you know, don't necessarily play with this at home. And we have an issue where a lot nib and jafitinib are not approved for this disease and they're expensive. So I think it's better for us to sort of test the paradigm. But putting data together in that area is going to be important. And once again, going forward with potentially some biomarkers, which were tested in a preliminary sense in the SWOG study, and also trying to couple that up with therapy to select patients is likely to be important. Yeah, that was published in the JCO with December 1st. And you read that paper, you come away saying, oh, it's an ineffective therapy. You listen to this case discussion, you maybe think about it again. Yeah, I think it needs revisiting. And it's not something that I'd suggest people necessarily use outside of a trial. But there's something there with these drugs in this disease. And if we can dissect it out in the next couple of years, we may get a strategy related to that. 